Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome everyone to episode 18 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the 8th episode of season 2. This one is all about Queen Sendia II of Anarchist, known as Sendia the Kinreaver. First, a warning. Sendia II might have the coolest nickname of them all, the Kinreaver, but it's an indication that this episode gets a weeny bit dark. Absolute power does some people's heads in. And when it goes along with brooding resentment and the harbouring of grudges, it's a nasty combination. But that's the way things unfold in this period of Anaquistian history, so get ready. Sendia was daughter of King Sain I, sister of Queen Varfina I. She was born in 240 and she takes the throne in 306, the age of 66. She reigns until 331 and dies at the age of 91. So the period of the youthful monarchs is well and truly over. Good things come to those who wait, it seems, and also to those who get rid of all remaining siblings along the way, grieving for all she was worth. Some people include Sendia II in the Varfanites, simply because of her sibling relationship, but others maintain that Hotch was the last of the Varfanites and the last of the youthful monarchs, Sendia II putting an end to all that. This is the sort of argument that's the stuff some academic careers are made of, after all. When Sendia's sister Varfina took the throne in 256 after the death of their father, King Sain, Sendia and her brother Rance were in Arenthia on a trade delegation. When news came of the death of the king and his supposed last wish that Varfina be his heir, they both hurried back to find everything done and dusted. Lacking any useful supporters, Sendia took herself to her fortress-like home in Lowtown and brooded. Rance, on the other hand, organised a commission for himself in the Navy and died in 327 in an accident with some old netting, a bucket of tar and a marlin spike. Little is heard about Sendia's doings over the next 50 years. She seems to have kept the lowest of low profiles. She takes on no official positions, leads no trade or diplomatic delegation, doesn't appear to have left Anaquist at all. For all intents and purposes, she is forgotten in the day-to-day affairs of the realm. From later events, what we can deduce is that she used this time to prepare herself and her resources in case an opportunity arose. Others point out that these opportunities did indeed arise, like Four monarchs take the throne after her sister Varfina dies, and we have no record of Sendia putting herself forward at any time during this quick succession of rulers. Was this hesitation, fear, or was she simply playing the long game? Dromka, in his 17th century tome, The Monarchs of Anarchist, suggests that Sendia actually wasn't idle in this time, and that she tried several alliances with major families in Anarchist, and also put out feelers for support in a number of foreign realms, but for one reason or another, none of these eventuated, or at least put her in a position where she felt she could make a successful bid for the throne. If plans and schemes arose and collapsed with that sort of regularity, 
No doubt it would have fed into her feeling of frustration and neglect and could explain some of what happened later. When King Hotch dies at the very early age of 28, his oldest child, Asta, is only four years old and obviously incapable of ruling. This is the classic setup for a regency council, and even given some of the difficulties that had caused in the recent past, it was the only way forward. Having a member of the Anarchist family on a regency council was considered essential for continuity's sake, or at least desirable, and whether Sendia had suborned a member or two or whether the members of the council simply threw their hands up in the air at the lack of obvious candidates before someone mentioned Sendia's name is uncertain. But once she was suggested, it was quickly agreed to, and an approach was made to the isolated and embittered Sendia. This unexpected invitation seems to invigorated the 66-year-old Sendia. She quickly recruited a dozen Jaloxian mercenaries as her personal bodyguard, and when they arrived, she made her way to the palace, marched to the advisory council chambers and accepted their invitation to head a regency council. Whereupon she, as head, declared that the regency council would have a sole member, and she would be it. With the Jaloxian mercenaries lining the walls of the advisory council, no one dissented, and Sendia was acclaimed as the regent until young Asta came of age. Sendia's next declaration as regent was that she would become the guardian of all three of Hotch's children, Asta and the twins Delia and Bors, and would take care of them all, removing them from the palace for safety's sake. Hotch's children were taken to a fortified royal villa two days north of the capital. This was built in the days of Omir in the early 200s and was originally a military camp used as a base for patrols and operations of various kinds. Over the years, it had been built up into a more lavish and comfortable estate, but it still retained much of its fortifications and security, and was made even more secure when Sendia took it over. It was isolated, well away from any other settlements, and this probably was the reason Sendia chose it. Anyone who wanted to try to use the Hotchian heirs for their own purposes, cultivating them in the hope of future support, would have to be determined just to get there. As well, since the villa wasn't on the road to anywhere else, no one could pretend that they were simply doing a drop-in since they were in the area. Schemers would stand out. And they were taken there for safety's sake? Hmm. For the Hotchianaires, the lonely road to the royal villa was a highway to the danger zone. Rain Highlights and here it's time for one of those freewheeling asides that this whole podcast is prone to. One thing leads to another, almost inevitably, and then to another, and sometimes that means we need to backtrack and backfill in order for everything to make sense. So I treat this explainer as a useful backgrounder that will provide context and make everything start to fit together. And this one's about the wilderness, the interior, that vast inland chunk of the continent that's well away from the population centres, which mostly are on the coast. And if not on the coast, they're within spitting distance. Now, saying that the wilderness or the inland or the interior, it has lots of names really, was unexplored or uncharted is a bit of a misconception or a romantic ideal, one or the other. Plenty of people have crossed it from side to side and north to south, but most of them have never been part of official exploration parties or journeys of discovery, mapping every step of the way. 
they're traders or scale prospectors or the people who simply found this part of the world a good place to live with lots of elbow room and loads of serenity. That last part might sound a bit unlikely because the interior of the continent is legendary for the harshness of its climate. In a nutshell, it's hot out there and it doesn't rain much, but even that's a vast generalisation. The interior is actually a region of microclimates and even though it's mostly flat, there are enough outcrops and worn-down mountain ranges that can channel precipitation. River valleys here can be surprisingly fertile and hospitable and it's in these that people have lived and thrived for centuries, sometimes coming and going, sometimes forming long-lasting communities. That's not to say that there aren't huge stretches of sandy and rocky desert that can actually be dangerous to try to cross, but to paint the entire inland with this brush would be going too far. The legendary inland sea, though, is not established. Stories tell of a huge body of fresh water fed by underground springs and aquifers that is the source for large rivers that eventually end up on the coast. But if this miraculous body of water exists, its whereabouts haven't been pinpointed. Some say it actually moves around to avoid detection, but stories like that are stories. This wilderness is home to some spectacular animals, the reptiles that dominate the continent, finding the warmth here, particularly to their liking. And even though a rocky plain might look bare of life, start shifting a few rocks and you'll have your hands full. The people you're likely to find in the inland are two sorts, the transient and the permanent. The transient include those people who simply don't like to settle down in one place for too long and they shift their dwellings around as the spirit takes them. Often they're particularly outstanding equestrians and they use their horses for mobility. Other transients, though, are in search of something. The wilderness is rich in mineral resources like copper and gold and individual prospectors or larger bands are often in the wilderness looking for riches like these or settling down to mine them. More interesting, though, are the scale prospect, those who are looking for heavenfalls of one kind or another, the riches that come from the battle between gods and demons above. Some search for years unsuccessfully, scraping a living however they can. Others have stars in their eyes and the thought of riches dancing in their head. The dangers and the hardships of living in this part of the world often don't feature into their plans before they leave the urban environment, and the reality is often lethal. The wilderness does host plenty of grizzled and veteran prospectors though, those who've done more than just scrape a living and could probably retire on the fines they've made, but many of them keep coming back either for the thrill of discovery or simply because they've fallen in love with this desolate and remarkable land. If you add to this the courageous traders who brave the wilderness in order to bring supplies to the above, with a substantial markup of course, and the outlaws and bandits who prey on these traders and the lonely prospectors, it starts to sound as if the wilderness is chock-a-block with people. But that's hardly the case. In the wilderness, you can go for weeks, months, without seeing anyone as you make your way across the rocky and desolate landscape. So much for transients, though. The permanent dwellers in the interior are another kettle of fish. And, by the way, there are fish in this arid land, some showing remarkable abilities to remain snoozing in mud for years until flooding rains come. As mentioned earlier, the river valleys are relatively pleasant places to live and can support sizable communities. 
and have over the centuries. Some of these are just the natural clustering that people tend to do. A prospector settles down on a pleasant river bend for a welcome break from the dust, stays there for a while, others going by think, hmm, this must be a good place. Traders start dropping in, attracted by the numbers of people, and soon we have the start of a settlement. Sometimes, though, the settling is more deliberate than that. And over the centuries, it's well known that groups of people, often disaffected by living in the larger towns and cities of the coast, have gone looking for somewhere to establish themselves and live by their own rule, free of the imposition of oligarchs and monarchs. The Karenites, the followers of what the temple calls the Karenite heresy, have established several communities, small towns in various parts of the wilderness, after being persecuted in the cities dominated by the temple. These have risen and fallen in size, depending on vagaries such as climate, but also piety. A few generations tends to be their lifespan, and after that the young people raised in the wilderness, but hearing of the life in the cities, often leave the wilderness behind, and the result are the ghost towns dotted here and there throughout the interior. Other communities in the wilderness are legendary for their lack of order, and needless to say, lack of piety. These are the outlaw settlements that often begin as a hideout or refuge for a band of fugitives or deserters who take to preying on others as a way of life. A temporary camp might attract more people, then some camp followers, more outlaws, then people who want to sell things to outlaws, and eventually it starts to look like a frontier town. These sorts of settlements seem to have an inbuilt lifespan. While they say small, a dominant personality can exert some sort of rough and ready order, but as they get larger, the chaotic elements and lack of respect for each other eventually leads to a collapse. In some ways, this is similar to the warlord states that rise and fall in the wilderness. A powerful leader attracts followers, they make a base, the warlord looks to expand by conquering other settlements and so on. The most successful of these last for hundreds of years and plague the travellers and settlers in the interior. But again, they seem to have a limited lifespan. The most ambitious of these warlord states tend to be ruled by someone who understands this sort of thing and continually embarks on the sorts of raids and conquests that keep the warriors busy instead of bored and looking for trouble. Of course, any series of battles can result in some of the more ambitious warriors, those looking to make a name for themselves, ending up dead, which is also good for the leader. Fewer challenges means fewer challenges. Over the centuries, occasionally a warlord has arisen who has been powerful enough to control large areas of the wilderness. Eyeing the prosperous realms and states in the more fertile parts of the continent, they occasionally think, I'll have a bit of that, thanks. And here's where I bring it back to the topic of this podcast. Because during Sendia II's reign, a warlord arose in the interior with just that sort of thing in mind. And Anaquist was one of the realms that suffered incursion from the wild people. And here's an aside within an aside. The wild people is what Anaquistians call these raiders from the inland, at this time anyway, in the same way people here would speak of barbarians. In truth, the raiders, the warrior army from the inland, were no wilder than the Anaquistians themselves. And it's a standard offhand pejorative you hear throughout history for the other. It could have been the way they looked, for the climate of the interior meant that garments that would have been considered outlandish in Anaquist were simply a response to the weather. Lots of leather, lots of bare skin, and 
plenty of use was made of the plentiful copper ore in the region, with studs, inlays, bronze, brass jewellery being the hallmark of the successful warrior. And yes, I realise I'm making them sound like super barbarians here. But when you understand these people had a sophisticated system of communication across distance, long before any magical means were used in the cities, and that the wild people had written laws which governed their conduct... I think that calling them barbarians is a bit of an insult. The warlord who appeared in this late 3rd, early 4th century period was called Thales Nesh. A physically imposing man, as warlords tend to be, he rose to a position of prominence, firstly by being an outstanding warrior and unbeatable in personal hand-to-hand combat, again, as warlords tend to be. It's almost as if there's a job description for warlord. One, be really big and strong. Two, have lots of charisma. Three, be capable of great cruelty. Four, but be generous in victory. Oh, oh, and five, have a booming laugh and or a piercing gaze. Thales Nesh had all of these, but he didn't have the usual failing of a warlord from this part of the world in that he didn't sneer at the ways of the people in the city. As a young warrior, despite the jibes of his fellows, Thales Nesh spared a traveller from Anaquist and insisted he be taught to read and to work with numbers. A year later, he spared the life of this traveller and sent him away with sacks of gold. This was typical of Thales Nesh. He learned as much as he could about organisation of the military, ways of traders and the geography of the rest of the continent, and he used this in his campaigns, gradually growing his small band into a sizeable army, one which he fully understood needed an outlet lest it turn on itself. Thales Nesh spent years planning his campaign. Again, unlike most of his warlord predecessors, he tended to campaign on the spur of the moment. And his first foray outside the interior and into the rest of the continent was made in 305, when the wild people fell upon the border regions of Perrin, looting, pillaging, putting its people to the sword and raising villages for miles. This was merely a harbinger of what was to come, because it soon became clear that Thales Nesh and his army were heading for Anaquist. For the next 20 years, Anaquist was almost under siege, with the wild people attacking in their usual way, avoiding pitch battle, choosing where they would strike, not being afraid to withdraw and regroup, rather than face the Anaquist army head-on, but mostly harrying the outer parts of Anaquist, which was by now a sprawling realm with its somewhat nebulous borders many days' travel from the capital. At one stage, a virtual wild people town was established on the northwest border of Anaquist after taking over the existing village of Overmau. Several thousand wild people were in residence, but by settling in one place, it proved too easy for the Anaquist army to strike and wreak considerable losses. Nevertheless, the constant presence of the wild people raiding the outlying parts of Anaquist was an ongoing headache for Queen Sendia. It tested her relationship with the military, several commanders of which she had beheaded due to what she thought poorly thought-out strategies to combat this impertinent incursion. Thales Nesh and the wild people never threatened the city of Anaquist itself, but Miro on the mouth of the Gefo River was attacked several times, as was Beacon, the river port nearest to the capital itself. The constant and uncertain movement of the wild people raiders was an ever-present threat, but it provided Sendia with an opportunity for one of the most heinous deeds in the entire history 
of the world below the war in the heavens. In 317, Sendia's brother Rance, who was serving in the Navy at this time, raised an outcry when he went to visit his nieces and nephews at the remote fortified villa, but couldn't find them anywhere. The entire estate they'd been living in was shut up, with not a soul to be seen. If anyone else had have reported this, Sendia probably would have had him done away with, but by this time Rance was well respected and had a useful power base in the Navy, having proved himself in both battle and leadership. Instead, Sendia claimed that the villa had suffered an attack by the forces of Thales Nesh and that everyone had been slaughtered, including the three Hotchian heirs. Many doubters expressed incredulity at this explanation, but very few stood up and accused Sendia of lying, especially considering her reaction to people who displeased her in such a fashion. Rance left the capital and never returned, and Sendia's reputation for savagery was established forevermore. It wasn't until centuries later, in the reign of Queen Pluriel, 1021-1032, to that workers renovating a wing of the fortified villa found immured in the wall three skeletons of small children, enough to definitively prove that Sendia was responsible for the murders? Almost. But when you add it to the rumours that one of the murderers hired by Sendia managed to escape being killed afterwards and ran to the far north to drink himself to death in Brill, only too willing to tell if he's hiring by Sendia in exchange for more drink, well the guilt starts to look more established. In some ways, this fits with the rest of her rule. It was a reign of terror, really, for Queen Sendia. As well as the nickname Kinreaver, which was whispered throughout the land, Sendia's middle name may well have been Ruthless, the way she went about her time on the throne. It wasn't, by the way. Her middle names were Jamila Enthor Drusilla Gloriana Demetra. If you are wondering... Sendia was a nasty piece of work when all said and done. Often with the monarchs of Anarchist, if they deal out cruelty or heartlessness, it has extenuating factors if you squint hard enough and hold things at a distance. Not so with Sendia II. She has no apologists, no one who's written a revisionist biography, no primary source that makes the case that she wasn't so bad, she was just misunderstood. Assuming complete power seems to have gone to her head and she rained completely disproportionate punishments on those who crossed, wronged or offended her. During her reign, she extended the dungeons and torture chambers under the palace, causing some concern from the hypogeum that the building works would intrude on their sacred space. She recruited torturers from right across the continent, paying extra for those with, shall we say, specialties. Beheadings and other gruesome executions were held regularly during her reign, a public spectacle. On a personal level, many palace workers were sent to the block for minor infractions, much to the dismay of the chiefs of the household staff, who had to raise the wages considerably in order to attract new workers. Even so, it became hard to fill vacancies, and some parts of the palace had to be shut up as they couldn't be serviced. The palace actually became a perilous place, usually somewhere that nobles and well-off others would flock to in order to curry favour with the monarch. The palace became dangerous ground. 
An ill-timed look, a poorly phrased compliment, or even the way someone dressed could be enough to earn them the ultimate displeasure from Queen Sendia. Foreign dignitaries weren't immune either, even though most quickly learned that being deferential wasn't deferential enough and that their bows and curtsy needed to stretch their physical limits, occasionally one didn't do enough. An absent-minded ambassador from Perrin once actually interrupted Queen Sendia during an audience and he was immediately hauled off to be broken on the wheel. Anaquis became a dark and frightened place, People were afraid to walk the streets of Lowtown at night, with rumours speaking of squads of Sendia's personal bodyguard roaming the streets looking for victims who'd be dragged off to the dungeons for Sendia's entertainment. While this is likely to be an exaggeration, a certain pall fell on Anaquist. Celebrations were cancelled, the boat races that were held during her reign were paltry affairs, and great holidays that were celebrated in the past were cancelled. Any thought that Hotch's midsummer extravaganza ball would be a regular event were sadly misplaced. Queen Sendia made very few personal appearances. The coinage from the time shows us an older woman with a severe aspect, slightly frowning, as if she's about to castigate the portraitist, if the result isn't likely to be good. The once regular royal audiences were abandoned and she left all arbitration in higher cases to the members of the advisory council. Um, And being a member of the advisory council became a poison chalice, a fraught position indeed. This resulted in inertia, and very few decisions were made for fear of upsetting the Queen. Occasionally, though, she'd become angry at the lack of decision-making and would purge the council and constitute a new one. Uh, Her methods of purging became more and more violent as her reign went on, as you might expect, and the stone walls of the council chambers were rumoured to be soaked in blood. In 331, uh, when she was eventually stabbed and killed by a junior corporal from the palace guard, there was a universal sigh of relief and mutters of, why didn't someone do this earlier? Even though the junior corporal had to be executed, he was privately hailed as the people's champion. The Succession. Sendia had three children. Blemon was born in 280, Salus in 283, and Iona born in 285. Blemon died in a snake wrestling accident in 300, the same year that Salus fled Anaquist for parts unknown, which is probably a good idea, as he was reputed to be a hothead, and he may not have wanted to lose it. Sendia formally recognised Iona as heir in 305, possibly trying to avoid some of the succession turmoil she'd seen in her lifetime. She died in 331 at the age of 91, the oldest of any Anaquistian monarch thus far, and was mourned by few. Queen Sendia II, the Kinreaver. She waited, she pounced, she cut loose. That's all for episode 18 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, Queen Iona I and the Tower to the Heavens. This has been the World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. 
Farewell.